following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. As you, uh, if you've been uh, at our church for any period of time, we've been going through um, a series, or Pastor Steve has been preaching uh, through a series on, on the life of David called After God's Own Heart. And uh, it's, you know, to be honest, it's been one of the most, I would say the most um, powerful sermon series that I've been th- through with under Pastor Steve's in the four years I've been on staff and about five or six years that I've been at the church. And, um, and uh, you know, I hope it's been like that for you as well. And um, today, you know, I'm going to try to unpack one of the most beloved psalms in the Bible. I think one that is very familiar to many of us. Uh, it's almost become cliche, right? And so, so with some trepidation, I'm going to try to tackle this passage, something that I've been meditating on for, uh, for some time now. Uh, if you've heard me preach, uh, oftentimes I will draw uh, stories, uh, personal life stories from uh, something that was a very transformative time for me and my own faith, and even my call to ministry about seven, or seven and a half years ago. Uh, if you're new to our church, you may not know this, but my wife, you couldn't tell if you looked at her, but my wife uh, uh, almost died seven and a half years ago uh, due to cancer. She had stage four lymphoma. And uh, it was just a whirlwind where we thought, she, you know, she started with a cough, and we took her to the ER because we thought it was bronchitis. And then before we knew it, uh, they were telling us, you know, she had cancer. And so I remember the, from that day we got into the ER, it was uh, a couple weeks before we, she could even come back home because there was a litany of other things that was going wrong with her body because of the cancer. And at the time, you know, uh, it was just such a whirlwind. And this is a picture of my family a few months before that diagnosis. Um, my kids were nine, six, and three at the time. And, you know, Tim, Tim was six, Sayla was three, and so Caleb was nine. And, you know, I, he was old enough to kind of understand probably what was going on. And yet, in the craziness of everything, I never really got the opportunity to sit down and, and tell him, like, Mom's sick, and this is what's happening. And uh, they knew he was, she was sick, but they didn't really know what was going on. And Caleb actually found out from one of his friends at school that Kim had cancer, his mom had cancer. And when I found out that that's how he found out, I was so mad at myself for not telling him myself. And, you know, he didn't really understand the disease. He didn't understand, you know, uh, how serious it was, uh, but he knew something was wrong. And if you know Caleb, he's uh, a senior now. He's 17 years old. He's a very quiet guy, very introverted, but he's also um, a very deep thinker. He's a very pensive uh, kid. And so uh, even to this day, it's always been hard to just get things out of him. I think it's gotten harder as he become a teenager. <laughs> but to just get him to open up and talk um, has always been kind of a challenge for, for me and Kim. I mean, he's not a mute, but um, but just getting him to open up and share about his feelings. And I know that's not a natural thing for a lot of us, but especially for, for my son Caleb, it's always been kind of a challenge. And so in the, in the course of uh, Kim's chemotherapy and, these, and the, a few months where, um, you know, we were struggling through um, the cancer, um, I had no idea really how Caleb was processing all this. And I was actually pretty concerned. Uh, enough where I was asking friends in our small group, friends um, even outside in the church, to, to pray for Caleb. And, um, I, you know, I, I just, I would ask him questions like, how are you doing? What are you thinking? And he just, he didn't really share a lot. And so one thing that I know I was praying for him consistently was that God would somehow use this and that God would even open up an understanding within my own heart to understand what's going on in his. And 
About two months into the diagnosis, um, at the time, Caleb was going to a homeschool co-op, and uh, another friend of ours was, had taken the teaching duties for him. And um, they were doing these devotional journals. It was a Christian homeschool co-op. And I, I didn't even know they were doing this. But uh, about two months into um, the cancer, um, I ran across these journals. And, and I was so struck by what Kayla was actually writing in these journals. I felt like this is exactly what I wanted to know. Like, what, how is he processing all of this that's happening to him? And it was just such a gift. You know, and it's just, this is so like God. And I know I've shared this story, I think, one of the first times I've ever preached here about four or five years ago. But um, when I even looked at the date, you know, when I was putting up this slide, I took a picture of that journal many years ago. And literally, they started talking about the sovereignty of God and journaling about it the week that Kim got sick. And I didn't even know this until two months later. And, and now as I was reading through that, um, I was just so struck by some of the things that he wrote. Um, I want to just read a few of it, a little bit of it for you. It says, he wrote, The king says, nothing happens by accident. I am sovereign. How often can you say that was by accident or it wasn't supposed to happen that way? Since the whole world is under God's control, there really can't be accidents. Isn't it comforting to know that the world isn't spinning out of control? This was the kind of the prompt for the devotional that they were to write when he was nine. And this is what he wrote in response to that prompt. He says, I thought my mom shouldn't have to go to the hospital. Knowing that God is in control makes me know that whatever happens, God will never let things get out of control. And if God is in control, he could heal her. And then he wrote this prayer, Dear God, you are good and can heal. You can heal my mom anytime you want, and you know how she feels. Sorry I did not read my Bible yesterday. <laughs> and sorry for getting upset when Tim made a mess in my room right after I cleaned it. These are the travails of a nine-year-old. Thank you, God, for friends who bring us dinner every night because my mom and dad are at the hospital. Please help me not to get mad at my brother and help mom to get better and not be scared when she gets surgery today. And, you know, I'm, uh, there's a bunch of other journal entries. I'm not going to read all of them, but uh, I was getting choked up even in preparing for this message, just rereading um, these entries because I was just so struck by how good and faithful God was even in those very dark moments in our life. And how in these journal entries I was given a glimpse of what was happening inside this nine-year-old boy's soul. How he was processing the hardship of this trial. And I was just so grateful for God, to God for that gift. Um, I think the book of Psalms is kind of like this. It's, it's an incredible treasure because it's a window into the heart of the man after God's own heart. And I believe this is why David is the most prolific writer of poetry in the Bible. The one man who wrote more than half the book of Psalms, the largest book in the Bible, the songbook of Israel. We're not just given a historical account of David's life in First and Second Samuel. We are given a life's worth of his personal journal entries set to music in the Psalms. It's this huge library of poetry and songs which explore and express every emotion he feels in every season of his life. And in the Psalms, God has given us a window into the inner workings of a heart that pursues God. And I believe God did this intentionally. In his wisdom and in his mercy, he's given this to us because he wants us to know 
exactly what that kind of heart looks like. Today I'm going to be preaching again, as I said, from one of the most beloved chapters in the entire Bible, Psalm 23. And we will be given an inside look into the soul of a man who outwardly is in great turmoil and yet inwardly has found incredible peace. You know, there, there is some debate about when David actually wrote this psalm, Psalm 23. And some believe that it was written early in David's life because, you know, he was a shepherd boy. And it only makes sense that he would write about God as a shepherd when he was a shepherd boy. But most scholars actually believe, as do I, that this was written much, much later in David's life. Perhaps even in the time of Absalom's rebellion, Many scholars actually believe that that was the period in which he wrote this. And this would put this psalm right at the point in the sermon series that Pastor Steve has been speaking on. This is part of the reason why I chose this text for today is because we've been walking and marching through, uh, you know, 2 Samuel. And now I, I want to just unpack through this psalm, like, what, what, what is David really thinking when all this is going on around him? Because if this psalm was written during this period, then David, now in his old age, He's running again like a fugitive. He's back to hiding in caves. Back in the same wilderness in which he found himself in his younger years. And, and I, I think it begs the question, like, what is he thinking? As David's life is spiraling downward, what could be going through his mind and his soul? As his kingdom and his family are falling apart, where does David turn? Like David, we all go through difficult seasons in our lives, maybe not so dramatic as him. I don't know, our, our kids fight, right, often. But how many of our kids are actually trying to kill each other? That's what's happening in his house. You may feel like your life is in a downward spiral. You don't know how to stop it. Your family, your home may feel like it's in shambles, like David's. Maybe you feel betrayed by someone who you should be able to trust, like David. And if you're not there now, it's probably only a matter of time before you are. And I think Psalm 23 begs the question, how are we to respond in moments like this? How do we respond in faith? And here's the truth. Difficult seasons in our lives cause us to doubt that God is for us. When we encounter great difficulty or trials or tribulations, that's the first question our heart goes to, right? Where are you, God? Are you for me? But when we remember God's faithfulness, and when we hold fast to his promise, we discover the peace of his protection and the wonder of his love. You know, I think this is why Psalm 23 has become so popular. It's like the go-to scripture. If, you go to, uh, if you've been to any funerals, it's, it's, it's probably the most quoted psalms in funerals or scripture in funerals because it brings peace and comfort to those who have experienced great hardship or great loss. You know, a young David, I don't think, could have written this psalm. These are not the reflections of a young boy. I think they're the meditations of a person who has endured many different seasons in his life and yet who recognizes that God has shown himself to be there through all of it. So I know it's familiar. It's a familiar chapter for many of you, but let's read it together in light of the context in which it was written by David. Psalm 23 says this. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's not a very long psalm. It's, again, one of the most powerful psalms. And, you know, it opens with just, you know, this line, which has become a cliche almost. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And I actually like how the NIV translates this. We just read it in the ESV. But the NIV says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. And what I think is implied at the start of this verse is the word because. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because he is my shepherd, I lack nothing. You know, Jim Carrey, the famous comedian and actor, said this, he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. And what Kerry essentially was saying is this, like, look, I, I've tasted everything that the world has to offer, and it has left me wanting. And I wish you could taste it too so you could see how empty it is. And David says something similar, but it's actually the other side of that coin. In this verse, when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He's saying, I wish you could know God like I know God as my shepherd. So you could see for yourself how incredibly full life is with him. I lack nothing. And this metaphor that David uses to describe God in this psalm is obviously something he's very familiar with as Someone who was a shepherd himself, who was the son of a shepherd. But I think it's fair to surmise that David did not, at least initially, probably enjoy being a shepherd, right? I don't think anyone did. It was, it was not really an esteemed position. And this is why it was relegated to him as the youngest, the runt of his family, to handle this menial task. And I think this was a job no one wanted, and I wonder if David spent much of his youth in loneliness, struggling to discover, like, what is his grand purpose in life as he learned how to care for this sheep? You know, I'm sure he had bigger dreams than just being a shepherd. And we're given a clue to this struggle of David, because when you see his oldest brother, Eliab, we see how he reacts when he sees David at the battlefield, a young David against the Philistines and Goliath. And David comes, and he's asking all these questions from the soldiers of the Israelites. And immediately, Eliab questions David's motives for being there. And he says, look, you're just trying to get out of watching the sheep. You know, get lost. And, but these days of solitude, I believe, were formational for David. In the quiet loneliness, David learned how to play the harp with great skill. He learned how to write music 
He learned how to sing. He learned to feel deeply. And he learned how to articulate those feelings into words. And when he's on the battlefield, you can see that David recognizes that God has prepared him for this exact moment. All those days of loneliness, all those days of solitude that were occasionally interrupted by sudden attacks from wild beasts, right? Like lions and bears. He believed were for, was for this moment. That's what a young David thought. And he believed this so wholeheartedly that anyone in that camp when he was there with the Philistines, among the Israelite soldiers, he's just telling them, I could take this guy. Who is this guy? I could take him. You know, I fought lions and bears. And, you know, he's talking so much that he catches the attention of King Saul. And King Saul's so desperate. Nobody wants to fight this, this Goliath. And so he suits up David for battle because, you know, he doesn't look the part, but he believes it. And it's just so crazy. And here's the thing. I think in that moment, David felt that he had figured it out. That God had given him that cruddy shepherd boy job as a training ground to taking out lions and bears so that he could defeat Goliath. But now I think David sees things a little differently. And all, all the praise is gone in his older age now. I think David now realizes that in his younger years as a shepherd, we're not so much about preparing David to do great things for God, like defeat Goliath, but rather his young years as a shepherd was to prepare David to see great things of God, to see God as his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Those young, lonely years spent caring for his sheep were not so much to prepare his hand for battle with Goliath, but to prepare his heart to give him insight, even in his old age, of how God has always loved and always cared for him. And it's remarkable that of all the moments in his life that David can say that God is all I need, I lack nothing, is when God is literally all that he has. When he pens these words, David has lost everything, his kingdom, his household, his people is just all gone. And yet still he can write and sing this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And in the end, David realizes that this was God's goal all along. Not so much to use David for his glory, but to reveal his glory to David. And the verses that follow begin to really further in, um, reveal how God, as David's divine shepherd, has demonstrated his love and care for him over all these years. Verse 2 tells us, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. When I was in my 20s, a, um, a pastor friend of mine gave me a book written by an, a man named Philip Keller called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. And it's just an exposition of this chapter from the perspective of a real-life shepherd. Philip Keller was a, a shepherd at one point in his life for many years. And so there are some rich insights in the book that most of us would miss because a few, few of us have ever had to raise and care for sheep, right? But in this book, Keller gives four reasons why, of why a sheep won't lie down. A sheep will not lay down if they're afraid. A sheep will not lie down if they're in relational conflict with other sheep. A sheep will not lie down if they're being tormented by fleas or parasites. 
A sheep won't lie down if they're hungry. So four Fs, if you want to remember it. Fear, friction with others, fleas and parasites, and food. Right? I don't know. Maybe it's true of many of us too, right? I can't, I can't sleep if I'm hungry. But, you know, a good sheep recognizes which of these is caused, a good shepherd recognizes which of these is causing distress in his own sheep. What it is that is not allowing his sheep to find rest. And a good shepherd carefully addresses it so the sheep can lie down and the sheep can find rest. And this is what it's speaking of. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And I think that's true, especially in this digital age. We're always on the go. And God is often in his love and care for us, trying to find ways to slow us down. I know that was, you know, in our cancer journey, like I said, we, I, spent, I took eight months off of work, and it was so many quiet moments of solitude just in the hospital and, and just leaving the corporate craziness. And it was just such a dramatic difference. And I felt like in many ways God was making me lie down in green pastures. You know, but here's the thing. The sheep are not like cattle. They cannot be prodded from behind. They must be led. And if they are thirsty, they will wander in search of water. But a good shepherd will lead them to safe places of quiet waters where their thirst can be quenched, where they won't be in danger of being swept away by strong currents. Sheep are not just dumb animals. Sheep are horrible swimmers. I don't know if you know that. And this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, if you try to jump into a river with a thick, heavy wool coat on, just see how far you get, right? That's basically what they're dealing with. And this is why verse 3 says, he leads, verse 2 says, he leads me beside still waters. This is the only place where sheep can find their thirst quenched. And in verse 3 says, he restores my soul. I love these words. He restores my soul. And I think it captures God's great mission for the world to restore, to bring back that which was lost, to heal inside of us that which is broken in us. David knows this to be the heart of God. And the reason why he makes me lie down and leads me beside waters is so that he might restore my soul. God is working towards the restoration of not just you and me, but of all things, of all of his creation. And each of us is longing for this. And Romans 8 tells us, it describes it as the groaning of our spirit and of all creation. This groaning, this longing for redemption, for restoration. The restoration of our souls. To recapture what was lost by sin and by the fall. He restores my soul. And then it says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. For his name's sake. And, you know, that is covenantal language right there. And we find it all throughout the Old Testament, especially when Israel is disobedient to God. God often says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do this for you. Not because you've, you've done anything right, but for my name's sake. You know, Ezekiel 36, 22, I think captures it so well. God says to the prophet Ezekiel to tell the Israelites, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but it is for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. So really it has nothing to do with anything the Israelites did. It was just God 
honoring his own name, honoring the covenant that he had made with them. And God's love is tied to God's promise to us. And God made it this way. Not so that he's bound to something that he might be tempted to break later. That's not why God makes a covenant. So that we can somehow catch God. So, oh, you know, I don't want you to renege God, so let's make a covenant here. No, God designed, I think, this in a covenant so that we might rest in that promise. We might know that we are secured by an unconditional love that is bound by a covenant. This is for our peace and our comfort. And I think this is actually very comforting. (laughs) Because David, man, he made some incredibly poor choices in his life. If you've been with us the last few weeks, it's like watching a rated R movie. I, I think some parents had kids in the room when we were preaching the last few weeks, and we had to escort them out because... It's some pretty bad stuff, you know. David committed some pretty horrific sins. And his children followed suit. But it's comforting to me to know that this doesn't seem to actually phase God at all. God knew he would fail. You know, I think God wants us to see how someone who fell over and over again still wrestled with God. And in the end, still finds God's incredible favor in his life. This is a man who struggled with loss so powerfully that he actually stole another man's wife. He struggled with pride so profoundly that he would kill an innocent man so that his sin would remain concealed. This is a man who is so weak and absent as a father that his own children are, like I said earlier, literally they are killing each other. They're not just fighting. This is the struggle. I mean, this is a very common struggle, I think, for many of us. Maybe we don't go to that extreme. But I don't know. I can relate to it. And yesterday we had a parenting seminar that Pastor Steve led, and it was, it was about parenting teens and preteens. And, man, we had a really good discussion around our table. All of us were, like, crying. We are like, it's so hard, you know, <laughs> parenting teens. And I feel the pain of David, you know. Like, in a lot of ways, I feel like, man, my household doesn't feel that far away from David sometimes. It's falling apart too, sometimes it feels like. But as you dig deeper into David's broken life, what you begin to realize is that God's love and his favor is not tied to our performance. It's not tied to our perfection. God's love and favor is, is, just, is tied to his promise. And our faith in that promise And this is the only explanation as to why David, despite his repeated failures over and over again, despite his struggle with some really bad sins, can still find favor in God's eyes. And this should give us all hope. Because there are many days I I know when I get tired of my repeated failures, with my struggle with sin, with my brokenness, but the life of David gives me hope. And through the story of David, I believe God is showing the world how a broken life can still become a broken hallelujah. It's not about living the perfect life. None of us can achieve this. It's about having faith in God's perfect promise. And this is all David had to cling to in the darkest moments of his life, the promise of God. But that was enough. That was enough for David. It was enough 
So that in verse 4, he could even say this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, up until this point, this chapter is like, it's like a Norman Rockwell painting, right? It's so peaceful and serene. And then comes this harrowing verse, verse 4. <clears throat> I don't think it's any accident that this verse, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, comes right after the verse, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Hardship, struggle, pain, valleys, shadows, death. These are all used by God to make me more like him, to lead me into a path of righteousness. For my good, for his glory. <clears throat> and we know this because when Jesus the one who was already perfect, began his ministry. He spent 40 days in the wilderness. And Matthew 4, 1 says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Just as David was led by God into the wilderness, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into that same place. And just as God was there for David, the Holy Spirit was there with Christ in that place as well. And this is why David can proclaim, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. You are with me. This is the only explanation, even in his darkest moments, in this point in his life, that David could say, I'm not afraid. Because of four words that he believed in his heart of hearts. You are with me. And these four words are really the centerpiece of this entire chapter. Right in the middle of this text by God's design. If there's one thing that you remember from this sermon or from this psalm, I, I hope it would be this. God is with you. God is with you. And that you'll be able to say, you are with me. I don't need to be afraid of valleys. I don't need to fear death or evil. And this chapter makes it clear that peace is not found in the absence of problems. Peace is found in the presence of the Lord. For you are with me. And then he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. And oftentimes when we see pictures of shepherds, and um, he's just carrying a staff, you know, with the little hooked hook on the end of it. But oftentimes, um, in those days especially, there were two tools, a rod and a staff that a shepherd carried, two very different tools. And the rod was used as protection against fierce animals. They may attack the sheep. It would often be thrown at animals coming at them. I think David's weapon of choice was a slingshot, stones. But for many shepherds, it was that rod and the rod was also used as a form of discipline for sheep that would wander into danger. They wouldn't be struck by this rod, but often startled by a thrown rod, led them away from maybe a cliff's edge or river currents. So this rod was a symbol of authority and of power. And then we had the shepherd's staff. The staff was a long, slender stick, as I said, and this is the one that we often see in pictures. 
caricatures of shepherds. And the staff was used to gently guide and direct the sheep to where the sheep needed to go. It was used also to draw sheep closer to the shepherd. And shepherds often used it as they walked alongside sheep. Instead of holding hands, you can't hold hands with a sheep, but a way of holding hands with a sheep would be just to, to let them know you're there by letting, walking alongside that sheep and allowing that staff to touch it. Both the rod and the, and the staff were used to guide and to protect the sheep. And this is why <clears throat> David can say this, this was a constant source of comfort for the sheep who understood its purpose. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The scene of this psalm now shifts from one of a loving shepherd to one of a welcoming host. Verse 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You know, some, some believe that this verse is referring to a moment when David has defeated his enemies and they're now bound and held captive in David's sight and he's about to enjoy a really nice dinner. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what is being highlighted here in verse 5 is not so much the captivity of David's enemies, but consistent with the prior verses, it's, it's this picture of the peaceful presence of God, even in the company of those who are seeking his destruction, even in the presence of his enemies. And so what it's saying is that even though these enemies remain in my life, even though they may be a thorn in my side, even though they may pose a clear and present danger to me and to my loved ones, God is still with me. And this is what's important. When I entrust myself to him, God will not only fight my battles for me, but I can fellowship, I can eat, I can rest, I can have peace with him, regardless of whether I'm surrounded by enemies. And this is an incredible statement, especially when you think about who is making it, because David has no shortage of enemies in his entire life. And when you examine the Psalms, you know, he actually writes a lot about his enemies, doesn't he? There's a whole genre of Psalms called imprecatory Psalms, right? Which is basically David just asking God, smite these guys, (laughs) kill them, (laughs) destroy them, vindicate me, vanquish them, right? He's imploring God to judge his enemies, all those that are in hot pursuit of him. But here's the thing. I think all of us can learn something from David about the way that he handles those that he deems his enemies. Those we see as a threat to us who are actively seeking our harm. What, does, what is the model that David gives us? We are to take it to God. We are to be honest with him about our struggles with those around us. But here's what's so remarkable about David. Although when you read these Psalms, you know, you get like, man, David's an angry guy. Like, you know, he wants nothing but revenge. But when you actually study his life, almost without fail, he's, he's like one of the most merciful and magnanimous people that ever walked the face of this earth. I'm convinced of that. You know, if you recall, on two occasions, Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 24, when David finds King Saul sleeping in a cave, he spares his life. This is the enemy. (laughs) This guy is literally trying to kill you. Here's your shot. And all the men who are with him, who are fleeing with him in these caves, they're so incredulous. Like, David, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? 
God has given you the victory. Take it. And yet David shows remarkable restraint, so much so that when Saul later discovers this, he's, he's humbled, at least temporarily, and he's repentant. But if you recall, in the very next chapter, in 1 Samuel 25, there, this fool named Nabal enters the picture. Pastor Steve spoke about it months ago. And David and his band of men, they're still fleeing from Saul. And they're rebuffed by this fool named Nabal when they ask if he might, they might feed, you know, in their, in their um, running, that they might, feed from, they might feed from his riches. He's a wealthy man. And they're hungry and they need food. And Nabal refuses it. Who are these guys? These are nobodies. I'm not giving you anything. And suddenly David's humility and his magnanimous nature that he displays towards Saul, his greatest archenemy, it just like suddenly disappears. And in a fit of rage, like he's like, I'm taking this guy out. And he's like girding his loins, pulling his sword. He's like, I'm going to separate this guy's head from his body. And Abigail, Nabal's wife, he, she catches wind of this and approaches David and with gifts and she's begging him for mercy for her foolish husband. And so David relents, and he spares Nabal's life. But do you remember what happens next? God takes care of Nabal. Within like 10 days, Nabal dies. David ends up marrying Abigail. But despite his mercy for Saul, you realize, you know, young David, he, he still has some growing up to do. He still has some anger management problems. And then just a couple weeks ago, Pastor Steve was re- preaching on a much older David, decades later, now as the king of Israel. He's fleeing from Jerusalem because Absalom, his son, has laid claim to the throne. And Absalom is out to kill him and to make it all official. And do you remember who they encounter on their journey back to the wilderness, David and his gang? They encounter this descendant of Saul named Shimei, who follows him and who incessantly mocks them. And he's even throwing stones at David. And, you know, it never dawned on me before, but as we were discussing this passage in a small group a couple weeks ago, I was just struck by the irony of this moment. Because here was the king of Israel, the one who in his greatest moment, against all odds, defeats the great Goliath by hurling a stone at his head through a slingshot, and, and then downs him and then cuts off his head. And yet, this is a young David. Now, decades later, an older David is here now having what? Stones thrown at him (laughs) by this nobody who's taunting him just like Goliath taunted him. And again, David's men are begging David, like, let us chop this guy's head off, please. And David shows remarkable restraint. He shows incredible mercy. Because within the voice of this foolish man, David is still able to hear the voice of God. The voice of his shepherd. And I'm convinced the only way that David could respond in this way is because he knew, though this man was shouting curses at him, God was still blessing him. So though nothing in his life at that moment seemed like it was going right, David had the faith that God still, favor was in his life because of his promise to him. So even then, he could declare, even there, you prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. 
My cup overflows. This is, this is what faith looks like. This is faith in God's promise. These indelible pictures of table fellowship over a meal, of being anointed by oil, of a cup being filled to overflowing with choice wine. These are all signs of God's continued favor, God's blessing in his life. And this is why David can close this psalm with verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This entire chapter is overflowing with covenantal language, words which invoke and remember God's promise to David. But this last chapter brings this idea home. God's favor, his continued goodness to David will be sure and it will be true, because, not because of David, but because it is tied to his hesed, a Hebrew term for unfailing love, often translated as mercy. It's found all throughout the Old Testament. This hesed, Word is used to describe a steadfast, loyal, covenantal love for the people of Israel. It's the same love that God has for all of those who accept his invitation, who enter by faith into a covenant relationship with him. And I love this idea of goodness and mercy, like following me. The shepherd leads, but goodness and mercy is following me from behind all my days. No matter what I'm facing today, no matter how dark the valley, the season of my life, faith in God's promise forces me to trust that God's goodness and mercy are sure to follow. Warren Wiersbe unpacks how Psalm 23 reveals all these different aspects of our covenant-keeping God. And he delineates all the ways in which different names of Jehovah God is actually revealed in this chapter of Psalm 23. It says, I shall not want. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. He leads me beside still waters. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. He restores my soul. Jehovah Rafi, the Lord who heals. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord is our righteousness. For you are with me. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Even in the presence of my enemies, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. You know, as Pastor Steve has been sharing, this is not a, a great season in David's life. David has forgotten who God was when he, while he reigned on his throne many years. But it's all coming back to him now. Everything has come full circle. He's hiding in the same caves that he did decades earlier. History is repeating itself. God is reteaching David lessons that he has forgotten when he held great power and had every pleasure at his disposal. God is reteaching him these lessons. Why? Because God loves him too much to let him be. In his spiritual malaise, when everything in his world is falling apart, God brings him back to the exact same place physically, so that he might bring David, his child, back to the same place spiritually. Those fervent seasons of his youth in Psalm 23, we see how David's soul is restored and his first love for God is renewed. You see the awakening of David's heart 
to God embedded even within these six verses of the psalm itself. I want to close with this. I just want you to notice, I never picked this up until I was preparing this message, but notice the subtle movements of this psalm over six verses. It opens with David referring to God as the Lord. And then it describes God as he. The Lord is my shepherd. And then it moves to he. If you could advance to the next slide. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And then David refers to God directly. It shifts to the word you. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. You fill my cup to overflowing. David is no longer talking about God. David is talking to God. And within this very poem, we see a gentle progression of relationship and intimacy and a heart that is opening itself back to God. The prodigal has been found by the God, the great shepherd, only because God himself has sought him out. God has found him in his wandering, and God is bringing him home. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If we take a moment, and I want you to consider this, Moses, the great Moses, the leader of the Israelites, asked of God in his deathbed in Numbers 27. He says, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. This was the cry of of dying Moses' life. This was his last wish that the people that he loved, that he would even sacrifice his own life for, that God would bring someone to lead them so that they would not be like sheep without a shepherd. What we find in John 10, Jesus himself presents himself as the good shepherd. And he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. But not only hear it, the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. And the only way you know if you have God as your shepherd is that you will be able to hear the voice of God in your life. You will hear it, but not only hear it, you will trust it and you will respond to it. Is this true of you? If he is not your shepherd, then you are not his sheep. Do you hear the voice of God in your life, even in your struggles? Even when your enemies are attacking you, even when those around you are saying, just take him out. Can you hear the voice of the shepherd above the voices of those around you? Let's take a moment and let's reflect in prayer as we remember God's faithfulness and hold fast to his promise. May we discover the peace of his protection and the wonder of his love.